Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. As many of you know, in addition to my work as a chiropractor, I am a doula. And my wife, who is a perinatal psychologist, is also a doula. We had our first three babies at the hospital and our fourth at home. We have both attended births of clients in the hospital and out of hospital, and there are some characteristic differences between hospital and out of hospital birth. Today, we're going to discuss some of the history and evolution of modern childbirth, as well as practical differences and considerations when it comes to choosing your birth setting and your birth provider. My guests today are Dr. Emiliano Shavira, who is a unique OBGYN and perinatologist. Unique in many ways, but one of which is his close collaboration with midwives and his supportive clients who choose to birth out of a hospital and back them up should they need to transfer care during pregnancy or birth. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You forgot to mention that I drive a Batmobile. You have a Batmobile in a cape. It's parked outside. I can't wait to go play with it. I hope I get a test drive. I want to see that. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, also in the studio is a proud mother of two, delicately balancing her motherhood and her artistic work as an actress, dancer, writer, and producer. She's an advocate for empowering and uplifting women, especially young women. She had her first baby in a hospital with an obstetrician and her second baby just three weeks ago out of the hospital with midwives, Janice Sardoit. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for being here and, and leaving your cave to <laughs> yes, share your my, experience with my us. nest. <laughs> your nest. Uh, I'll admit that um, I used the word traditional birth in the opening, and it's a confusing term. To some people in developed countries in particular, traditional birth refers to the most common type of birth today, which is hospital birth. But to other people, traditional birth means what it was before modernized birth, which was home birth. I saw in an article from the BBC, there was a historian, Margaret Marsh from Rutgers University, who gave this basic timeline that up until about 1760, women gave birth at home, largely supported by her female relatives, friends, and also the help of a midwife. Around 1760, upper-class women wanted doctors at their births, believing that their advanced education would lead to safer births. Doctor-assisted home births became very popular, and by 1900, about half of all births were attended by midwives, 
and by 1935, only 15% by midwives. Over time, rivalry developed between doctors and midwives. Doctors would say, we know more about anatomy, so we're better suited to do this. And midwives would say, we're women and we do this. We have experience with it, so we know how to do this better. For many decades, the tug of war broke down along gender lines. All of the doctors were male and all of the midwives were female. The shift to hospital births started in the 1930s when anesthesia was advancing for delivering children, and women were sold on the concept of pain-free childbirth. At first, there were lots of complications in hospital birth with anesthesia. By the 1960s, doctors were delivering nearly all the babies and at hospitals, and midwifery seemed to be on the road to extinction until the feminist movement of the 1970s revived women's interest in midwives. Women once again wanted to control their own childbirth experience. Here we are now, and out-of-hospital birth is on the rise today. What was once thought of as only being for fringe, tree-hugging, prehistoric vegan hippies, like me, uh, is now a choice made by very diverse women and partners from all backgrounds, ethnicities, socioeconomic classes, professions, religions, etc., we have an episode, in fact, with Dr. Jennifer Lang and OBGYN, who originally thought she wanted to have an elective cesarean and then ended up choosing unmedicated hospital birth for her first baby and home birth with midwives for the next two. Several documentaries make the case for home birth, including The Iconic Business of Being Born with Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein. And we have an episode with Ricky talking about the film and what her inspirations were to make the film and some of its impact over the past 10 years. Other films like Why Not Home share the stories of doctors, nurses, and midwives who choose to have their babies at home. Of course, today, at least in Los Angeles, now you have interesting options like midwives attending hospital birth and obstetricians attending home birth. And of course, there are many more female obstetricians and a handful of male midwives and at least one male doula that I know of. Janice, let's start with you. You had your first baby at a hospital. I did. Um, what was your planning and thinking um, as you got ready to have your first baby? Was it ever a question? Uh, so it was definitely a question. Um, my norm with my family is obviously you have an obstetrician, you you have your birth in the hospital, your, your baby in the hospital, I should say. And something f didn't feel right. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> And I just started doing a little bit of research, and um, I noticed that in Los Angeles, I'm originally from Miami, Florida, so it's midwives is not a thing out there at all. But I, I'm in Los Angeles, and I started doing research, and I noticed there was some midwifery. Um, there was a location in Culver City called The Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And so I went there, and I checked it out, and it was amazing. All the midwives were amazing. It just felt right. And so... It was really hard to get my husband on board because he also comes from that mindset of, what are you talking about? You have a doctor and then you have a baby in the hospital. For you guys, is that your mindset in general that that med med you place your trust in medicine versus more holistic things? Or um, just in terms of birth, it, it's a foreign concept? I think in terms of birth, it was a foreign concept because of our family. Um, but I'm more on the holistic side of things with my just my general health. Mm -hmm. So that's why I had to question that when I became pregnant. Um, so my, it wasn't until you were pregnant that you started thinking about it. Right. I never thought of it before because 
I don't know, I guess I wasn't pregnant. I wasn't, you know, so you don't really think about those things until you're in it. I think that's pretty common, though. What's that? To not really think about the choices until you get there. Right, exactly. So um, once I was there, there was something deep inside of me that said, no, I don't don't want to be in a hospital. Um, But I had to do the research because no one in my family, not even my closest friends, knew where I could look or what to do or where to go. They're like, what are you talking about? What what are you going to do? And they started calling me, you know, what are you, a hippie? Are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) And I just said, you know what? It's okay, guys. I don't need your support. I had to make my husband watch Ricky Lake's Business of Being Born um, for him to get on board. He was so against it at first. Um, He saw the Business of Being Born. He was like, I don't want you near hospital ever. <laughs> okay, so he did a total 180. But yes, thank God. <laughs> what was his opposition? What was he, when he made the argument, no way we're having a baby outside the hospital, the first dance, mm-hmm. what was that based on just because it's not done? Was he afraid of certain things? I think the fear of the unknown. Like he, he was like, where else are you going to have a baby? And, you know, what is the other option? And just the fear of the unknown. And so once I showed him the business of being born and I found the sanctuary and I told him, come with me. Let's check it out together. Let's see what this is about. Um, he, he definitely switched. It, was, it wasn't even a hard switch. It, mm. He was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Which, but you still had your baby in a hospital. I ended up being a transfer, yes. Oh, you weren't planning to have your baby in the hospital? No. Ah, Mm -hmm. so we're going to have to find out more about that. Yeah. You were planning to have the baby with midwives Mm -hmm. at home or at the birth center? No, at the birth center. Why did you choose birth center instead of home? Um, It was my first, and I think home was a little bit too – I don't know if the right word is foreign, and I didn't want my family – my family was already very stressed out that I was choosing a different route. Um. So to them, did birth center feel like an in-between? Not at home, but not at the hospital? They never said that, but I think I made that decision for them. I was like, I think they're going to feel a little more comfortable comfortable and maybe that I'm safer, I don't know, than being at home. Um, Why do they have a fire extinguisher? (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) Because I think a lot of people don't realize that a birth center is oftentimes just an apartment or a loft somewhere. Which is what it was, funny enough, um, then with the sanctuary. Uh, I'm not sure. I just kind of made that decision for them. them. I didn't really give them – I mean, at the end of the day, it's my child, my birth, my experience. So no one really had a say. But for you, was there a benefit to birth center over home besides how it would be perceived by other people? Well, at the time, we also were living in a a two-story townhouse. Okay. felt a little – I don't know. I I wanted – I didn't want to do it at home. It was carpet. I, I hear that also a lot, but but isn't the birth center just a one studio? Well, at that time, um, the sanctuary had a one bedroom, big old, beautiful. That was bigger than your two stories. It wasn't necessarily house? bigger, but it just <laughs> felt more comfortable. It felt like it was prepared for that. They also had the tub, uh-huh. which I didn't have at my home. It was I know a very nice tub. It was super beautiful. <laughs> you yeah. felt like you were at a spa. Um, it just felt better than okay. my home. So at the, the time. benefit for you too. You you right. wanted to be there, um, and it was aesthetically very pleasing to you. Yes, it was a really beautiful center. It we was. say past tense because it closed down. Correct. Yeah. Um, all right, and then you did your care with those midwives, and then what happened for labor? So I was a four day labor. <laughs> 
Okay. You <laughs> really like to get your money's worth because yeah. it's a flat fee. So. <laughs> it was intense. It was pretty smart. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I did have a backup, and um, it was at the Good Samaritan downtown. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up there. I The midwife said out of exhaustion, and I was kind of— How did labor start, that one? That one started I on a Tuesday. I'll never forget. I went to go pee. I lost my mucus plug, and boom, contractions started. Oh, really? That yeah, quick. it was pretty like back to back. Where were you in relation to your due date? Uh, I was actually four days late. I was due on the twenty fourth. Four days past your due date, anyway. Well, I started on the twenty fourth, but mm-hmm. she came on the twenty eighth. Right. So. <laughs> and uh, but it, so it started right away with contractions, and then it just went on for four four days without a lot of progress. Um, it was very kind of up and down the first few days, and then it was very consistent, but I was just not, I guess, um, I got myself all the way to eight and a half centimeters, so. Oh, that's uh, pretty far. Yeah, but I got stuck at some point there, and they were getting worried because I was literally falling asleep in between contractions. Mm. Like, I would have the contraction, and I would just, like, <sighs> knock out. <laughs> so you were at the birth center? Yes. In the beautiful tub, or they did not let you get in there? I was in there, but then I got a in and out. You know, okay, kind of feeling it out. So you made they made the choice with you. Yes, that you should transfer to a hospital. Yes, and what happened at the hospital? Thankfully, um, the Good Samaritan had um, at that time they had uh, nurse midwives there. So when I got there, they they already knew who I was, and it was really quick and easy, and. Um, they said I should get an epidural, which I really didn't want. But everybody, even my midwives, the nurse midwives there, were like, yes, we think you should get this. And so I, I finally gave in. Was there a reason you didn't want it? <sighs> I just really wanted to do it on my own. I didn't want any interventions. I didn't want to have are, any. Are you like that in general? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it... We have nothing in common. <laughs> <laughs> I like a lot of help. Oh, no. I was like, I can do this, right? Um, but I was very tired, and my body was stuck, and it was a long, long labor. So I finally gave in. And um, I'll never forget, my first experience with the doctor that gave me the epidural was very condescending. And he said to me, um, oh, so you couldn't hack it on your own, right? <laughs> I'm like, who says that to a woman in labor <laughs> about to get an epidural? It was traumatic. And my husband was holding my hand. And I guess gave him a really nasty look because after that he didn't say anything else. Um, gave me the epidural and things went really quickly after that. I just – I lost feeling in my legs at that point. So, But but you went from eight and a half to ten quickly? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. And then I, I pushed I think for maybe 20 minutes. You couldn't do it in ten, huh? No, you don't. No, you don't. I know I don't. I mean, you're tough, by the way. If I met you in a dark alley and you were mad, I would run. I wouldn't fight. You should. Uh, Okay. So that was your first birth experience. That was, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Shavir, I mean, most obstetricians deliver in hospitals. There's a handful who also do home birth. In this town, there's a few who also do home birth. Um, in, in terms of practicality, I mean, we talked about the history a little bit. I mean, everybody used to give birth at home. Not to say that it was, you know, we had the greatest outcomes ever. Um, but then for various reasons, I think anesthesia was the big one that pulled people into a hospital. Are there 
benefits in your mind to delivering at home versus delivering a hospital and vice versa? Absolutely. Uh, and and I, I think, um, you know, very very often this uh, the conversation is trying to figure out which one's better, which one's superior. And it, they're really just very different. Um, and, you know, there are, there are certainly going to be births that are not appropriate to, to happen at home. But if we're just talking about, you know, normal pregnancies, normal births, um, there's just a different set of, you know, risks and benefits to being in the hospital versus giving birth at home. So the thing that people really worry about is that some natural disaster is going to occur during the labor and, um, you know, lightning's going to strike or somebody's head is going to explode or um, I'm kind of being flippant. But, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's, there's a lot of concern about some acute, horrific complication that's going to happen in the middle of labor. And if, uh, if you're in the hospital, then there are certain capabilities that we have, for example, an OR and, you know, blood transfusions and anesthesia and, and other specialists and, and so forth. And if the baby's not doing well, we have the pediatricians and the NICU and the neonatologists. Um, so if you are one of those you know, unlucky people that suffers a real severe complication that you really need to respond to within seconds or minutes, yeah, that you're better off if that happens to you in the hospital. Um, but the thing is, the likelihood that you're gonna have that is pretty low. So what is the price that you pay for being in the hospital? Um, you know, first of all, you have to get up and leave wherever you started labor and transport yourself to the hospital. Um, I've never done it, but labor seems to be a pretty intense, <laughs> intense physical endeavor from what I've seen. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, we, we normalize the notion that, you know, you're in labor and then you jump in a car and you get on a freeway and you drive over to the hospital because that's what everybody does. Mm -hmm. So we don't think about that as a thing, but that's a thing. You, you talked about the unlikely possibility of, uh, of severe time-crunching emergency happening. Mm -hmm. Um when those do happen, are they more likely to happen during labor or at the very end? With, for example, could, could they happen in the middle of labor, or are they when they do happen usually at the very end? They could happen in the middle of labor. So I'm, I'm thinking of examples of things like um, what we used to call a, um, amniotic fluid embolism, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden the mom is having respiratory collapse and she can't breathe. And you get a clotting disorder that comes with that, so she starts hemorrhaging. It's an extremely life-threatening complication. And so if, if, if I'm going to have an amniotic fluid embolism, uh, I plan to have that in hospital, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an incredibly rare complication that you can go through your whole uh, career as an obstetrician and never see one. But I also I see so many people who feel the safety net of the hospital for pushing. So they want to labor at home as long as possible and then transfer to the hospital towards the very end for pushing. But you're saying this can happen during any point of labor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the odds are very small to begin with, but if they're going to happen, laboring at home doesn't necessarily protect you from that. Right. 
What are some of the other things? Uh, another example would be a condition like abruption. The placenta separates itself prematurely from the uterine wall. And now, of course, that's a spectrum condition, right? You can have a separation that's so minor that nobody ever knows it happened. Mm-hmm. The other end of the, of the spectrum is where uh, a very large portion of the placenta, or maybe even the majority of it, separates from the uterine wall. And that's um, uh, becomes um, acutely life-threatening for both mom and baby. Um, is that again something that can happen during the middle of labor? Or it can. It, and, and, it okay. can, but it's also incredibly rare, um, you know, for that to happen. I. How do you know it happened? The 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 common symptoms are uh, one is intense pain, mm-hmm. so out of proportion to what you normally experience in labor. I was going to say you good. might also have uh, pain. But will you feel it if you're totally? Numb from epidural? Actually, you still might. You still might. Um, <clears throat> and you, you, there also may be pain in between contractions, mm-hmm. which there, you know, usually the, the pain is in the contraction and the contraction relaxes. You have a few seconds or a couple of minutes of reprieve until the next, you know, contraction comes. But with, if you're having a really bad abruption, there might be pain just continuously. Mm. Just, just to the way people are monitored at a hospital versus monitored at home, um, I'm generalizing, but oftentimes in the hospital you're monitored remotely by machines and nurses come and go, doctors less commonly come and go. Um, But at home you're usually surrounded by a midwife who's around you or at a birthing center looking at you, talking to you, touching you, who's gotten to know you very well. Um, It almost seems possible that would one of those complications comes up, they might detect it quicker um, at home where you're not medicated um, and more aware of what you're feeling. And, well, theoretically, and that might be possible, but the response time when you're in the hospital is going to be much quicker. Sure, but some of the birthing centers are right next to a hospital. So, I mean, you could end up in a situation where you become aware of it minutes earlier and or more, and right. and then get to the hospital and take take action quicker. Also, something that occurs to me, because I lived in Nebraska for a little while, is that not every hospital has an anesthesiologist and a surgeon ready to go right. when one of these things pops up. So right. hospitals that do a few hundred births a year may not be able to jump into action that quickly. In those cases, I'm not sure how giving, you know, giving birth next to the hospital is all that different from giving birth at the hospital. Yeah, and that's why uh, if you look at data comparing safety of home birth to hospital birth, um, it's an error to be overly simplistic about that. And uh, I mean, this is the way it is interpreting all research. You have to be very thoughtful about well, exactly what circumstance are we are we talking about? Because you've highlighted some things that would. Um, that would that would change significantly the safety of a, of a of a home birth, right? If you're right next door to a hospital, that's very different from if you're doing a home birth and you're an, an hour, hour outside the mm-hmm. city. Sure, that that transport's going to take you an hour to get into a city. Those are very different circumstances. Right. Um, and so I didn't mean to cut you off. You had the amniotic embolism. Right. The placental detachment, mm-hmm. 
partial or, or complete. Um, what are some of the other things that can come up? Um, you can have uh, cord prolapse where the umbilical cord slips past, past the baby and comes out the vagina. Um, Is that rare with a head down baby? It's pretty rare. It's it's uh, it's definitely uh, way less than one percent. Um, is it always a major complication? It is not always. Um, you know, every case is an individual case. But if you're talking about a head down birth, the head generally fills the birth canal. Mm-hmm. So if um, the umbilical cord somehow gets past the head, it's very likely that head is going to be squishing the umbilical cord against the walls of the of the birth canal so compressing the cord so compressing the cord and and, that's and the you baby's know only source yeah of, cutting uh, off oxygen supply to the baby and it it is there does appear to be a correlation between you know the longer that condition persists the more likely that is to hurt the baby sure so it's a it's a condition you usually want to respond to you know very quickly what would you do for it in a hospital the simple answer that usually is going to be an emergency C-section. So you can't you can't maneuver things so that you take pressure off the cord, or that there just... are there are case reports like that. There are uh, case reports of uh, you know reducing the uh, umbilical cord back into the uterus, um, but in most cases, what's going to end up happening is a is an emergency C-section. Mm-hmm. What else you got? Um, well, I, I mean, I think the main, it's kind of stepping back a little bit and getting back to your original question, you know, like the pros and cons of being in the hospital and at home. We've, uh, we've sort of given a couple of examples of conditions that could potentially happen that if you are in the hospital, they can respond to those quicker and they have more capabilities. So that's, I think that's what you gain by being in the hospital is the, is the ability to respond to these types of emergencies. But you lose something as well. Mm-hmm. And so you lose, uh, you know, being in the comfort of your own home. There may be restrictions on who can be present at your birth. It's a very common question. How many people can I bring into the labor room? And I always say no more than 25. <laughs> it's an absolute, that's an absolute limit. Um, but, you know, there can be res- restrictions on who's present at your birth. And then if you end up with a C-section, usually one person is allowed to go in right. know, to the birth with you. Um, but you wouldn't do a C-section at home, probably. Well, th- th- that, that's, yeah, that's true. Um, also, the experience of labor is very different because there are so many protocols in the hospital. Um, there are certain things like uh, they're usually going to have you on an empty stomach. They're going to uh, place an IV into your hand, which is, you know, can be painful slash uncomfortable. Mm. Um, I think in addition to painful and uncomfortable, it's not all that empowering, meaning it doesn't make you feel very safe and like everything. Like your nervous system responds to the stimuli around you. So when we shove this emergency shunt in your veins, say we think you're probably going to die, but we'll at least have this emergency shunt in there. It doesn't. Uh, that that may depend on the person. For, for I'm I'm giving you feedback from patients, you know, um, mm-hmm. who, who putting on a hospital gown doesn't make you feel very sure. strong, healthy, vibrant. Like I'm I'm expressing my healthiest moment here. Um, Absolutely. Now, so. if you're if you're doing a home birth, I guarantee you, you're being taken care of by somebody who knows you and knows you very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very common element of hospital births is that you're cared for by strangers. Right. 
Uh, it may, in fact, be that you're taken care of by whoever was doing your prenatal care, and um, you know that that certainly happens. But it's a very common uh, practice for women to get prenatal care in some kind of clinic or office, and the person who's on duty on the day of the birth is somebody they're meeting for the first time. So you're attended to by um, strangers. And sometimes multiple people, like in the case yeah, of may a four-day birth, shift you and... probably have many nurses and doctors coming oh, in. yes. Yeah. And yeah. a couple people of people. People I have never met or seen before. So. One or two people just to count how many gloves are in stock. Mm. Um, okay, this is fascinating. Let's take a quick break and come right back to continue the conversation. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, here discussing birth settings and providers with our guests, Janice Sardoui and Dr. Emiliano Shavira. Um, Janice, your first birth was uh, a whirlwind. Uh, just three weeks ago, you had your second baby. Yeah. And um, you went back to a birthing center. I did. A um, different one, but a different one. Center. Did you, I mean, after your first experience, did you think maybe I should just do this at a hospital? Not at all. No. No. I I personally was not happy in the hospital. From the from the first moment of getting the epidural from a doctor that told me, oh, did I give up or I couldn't hack it, it was just really, here I am. I, it just didn't feel right. So when I got pregnant the second time, I looked at my husband and was like, we got to find a birthing center because the sanctuary had closed. Right. Um, so I did. I found um, Del Mar Birthing Center in South Pasadena. And they are amazing. And um, because I was a hospital transfer the first time, I did have that fear in the back of my mind, like, is that going to happen again? So I was um, definitely comforted when I was told Huntington Hospital was five minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to know that because I believe that that is there for emergencies, you know, hospitals. Yeah. For when you're in labor, an emergency, like we just talked about, comes up. That's what the hospitals are there for. That's what those doctors are there for. And that is my belief. I know I have friends that they're like, nope, I feel safer in the hospital and I want to be in that setting. And 
to each his own. For me, I think it's empowering to just feel safe um, in that moment. For me personally, I feel safer with midwives and the people that I invite to be in that moment. Um, but every woman's different, so. How did your second labor start? At home, uh, at one in the morning, woke me up <laughs> in bed, and my husband was right next to me. I was like, okay, cool, this is happening. Um, and it was very calming, I guess, because I already did it, and I knew what to expect in, in a sense. I mean, every time is definitely unique and different, but... I did it once, and I'm alive, and my child's healthy and happy, so I was like, I can do this. Um, so it was fine, and I did most of my labor at home. I had the same doula. She's amazing. Uh, she came around 8, 9 in the morning and just started assisting me, helping me, and my husband had to go to work, so he's like, I'll be right back, I promise. I was like, you can't promise that. What if I have this baby and you're not here? Um, but he did come back, and uh, we did a little bit more. Around 5 p.m., we ended up going to the center, to the Del Mar Birthing Center, which is only 15 minutes away from where I live, thank God. And um, what, what made you go at that point? My doula. She was pretty much kind of like the coach there. She was definitely she like leading you. the back. Because if you me. go too early, they'll send you back home. Yes, and yeah. I was not, no, that's so uncomfortable. I mean, I've, yeah. I didn't happen to me, but um, I've heard it happen. So she knew, you know, she's an amazing doula. She has experience. Um, she's been doing it for a while. so And she also knows me. She was with me my first. So she's like, okay, we're ready. Let's do this. And she called my midwives and let them know we're on our way. And um, at 1 in the morning, so it was a 24-hour labor, he was there. And so I did a, the, most That's of the so day quick. at home. Yeah, for the <laughs> four-day, right? So most of it at home and then the nighttime with the midwives at the center. And he came at 1 in the morning. So it was did about a 24-hour. Did they check your cervix when you got there? They did, and I believe I was really in and out at that point. Uh-huh. I think they said, I don't remember. I think I was at like five or six. I can't uh-huh. remember. Did they ever get intense for you? You're so calm about it. I just wondered, you know, <laughs> did you struggle with it at I all? I did. I actually had a moment where I was like, I can't do this. I said it out loud. And um, my midwives, my doula, my mother, and my best friends that were in the room, and my husband, they were like, yes, you can. But with such confidence. And that's why I chose those people to be there. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I can do this. Um, and so I did. But I did have that moment. And I did do the nitrous. I'm not going to oh, say I didn't. Yeah. It's good <laughs> to did. have in case you need dental work in the middle of, <laughs> you know, seven centimeters. What, what happened um, right after that moment when you, when you said you couldn't anymore? Then what came next? I'm curious. Actually, I was, I was pushing. I <laughs> It was that, and it's funny, my midwives, because the first time since I had the epidural, I didn't feel much of anything around that time during pushing and things like that. I mean, I could push, and I did have a vaginal birth, but I didn't feel anything, and my midwives knew that, so they said, okay, you're going to feel the ring of fire. And I was like, what? What are you talking about, the (laughs) ring of fire? (laughs) And I did. I felt just that. I felt like a fire, but it it wasn't anything I couldn't do or was going to die. It just felt that way. And I was like, oh, wow, that's what they're talking about. That makes sense. I didn't feel that the first time mm-hmm. because I was, you know, drugged up. So um, so you were happier feeling the ring of fire? I personally was. Yeah. I thought it was so cool. Like, oh, okay, they said I was going to feel this. This is what I'm feeling. This is what it feels like. And it's that moment where, okay, I'm about to meet 
my baby. Um, so for me, it was very exciting, but I'm a very hippie gypsy girl. So Because you can feel more, did it f- feel more like an, an active participation on your part? That, and it also felt like I'm in charge of me and my body, and I'm very in tune and aware. I know what's going on. I felt very disempowered with the um, epidural. I didn't know what was going on. I was being told when to push, when not to push. I couldn't feel much of anything. So for me, that felt, it just didn't feel good for so me. at the birth center, was there, there, no, there no coaching on your pushing? You just pushed when you felt like there it? There was. There was definitely coaching. But I. it was kind of like this, um, we were all one in a sense because I, what they were telling me made sense to me. You can feel it. I can feel it, yes. And funny enough, I have a, a little theory. This is my personal theory. Um, I didn't tear at all with this birth and with my first I did. And I personally believe that when you can't feel down there and you're pushing so hard, even though they're telling you when to push and when not to push, you're, you're just like going all crazy. I feel like, yes, you're more likely to tear because you you have no feeling and sensation or kind of control versus when I had no drugs, no epidural, I knew exactly what was going on down there. I knew my body. I knew when to stop. Even though they, I was being coached, I also was making the decision, you know, when to back off, when to not at that same time. So it's my theory. I could be completely wrong and it's very um, – you know, out there, but I, I think that you're less likely to tear. Is there you... data on that, that? You know, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, one thing that makes it a little bit complicated is, in general, you see a lot less tears on the second pregnancy than the first. Mm. So there's that. Uh, but on the other hand, um, if you look at the American College of OBGYN committee opinion on home birth versus hospital, they have a table that goes through some of the statistics about different complications of pregnancy and the incidence, you know, home versus hospital. And so one of the things that's very clear is the incidence of significant perineal tears is lower in home births. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And and then I think just on a conceptual... What about in the hospital, medicated versus unmedicated? Um, I don't know if I've seen that. Um, Curious. That would be interesting. But, yeah, I mean, there may be something on that out there that I'm just, you know, not familiar with. But I think the concept that you're... Uh, that you're talking about is, you know, I've come to appreciate in the last several years where I've um, had a lot more interaction with midwives and conversations with them, the notion that mom can feel baby passing through the birth canal and she responds to what she's feeling intuitively in order to assist, you know, the baby to pass through the birth canal. And mom and baby are kind of doing this dance together. That's just very old uh, midwife knowledge Mm -hmm. that for us OBs, it's it's totally foreign because we don't talk about that during our training. And it's... It's just kind of a thing that we that we're not really attuned it's like to. Like an old wives' tale. <laughs> yeah, but I I think um, it I th- I think there probably really really is something to what you're saying mm-hmm. for sure. You mentioned Dr. Shavir at the beginning that there are certain births that would not be appropriate in your mind to have outside of a hospital. What are some of those? Well, it probably depends on um, on who you ask. Um, there are uh, midwife organizations that actually have 
um, you know, published criteria. And I'm not totally familiar with those since that's not my practice. I'm not a midwife. But there's certain things like uh, you're not going to have a preemie baby at home. Um, and so pr- probably you're limiting to something like 36, 37 weeks or beyond. Uh, conditions where there are significant birth defects in the baby and you're expecting the baby's going to need some kind of uh, specific care at the time of birth. So we're talking about, you know, well-formed, you know, normal, full-term baby. Um, usually the mom does not have significant medical complications like, you know, really um, severe diabetes. A lot of times milder forms of gestational diabetes, there's kind of a fudge factor there. Mm-hmm. She's not going to have, you know, real bad hypertension, cardiac disease, heart disease, kidney disease. She's sort of Basically, a healthy mom, a full-term, you know, normal baby, which is the majority of pregnancies, right? Are the healthy? Are the healthy? Yeah. You know, so in the in the end, probably most women would be candidates for home birth. But I, I think uh, if we ever have a conversation with this about a midwife, they could be a lot more specific. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I was just curious in your mind if there are certain things that mm, you would rather see at a hospital. Uh, what are some of the reasons that people uh, – Janice transferred because uh, it sounds like mostly exhaustion, exhaustion with your first pregnancy. What are some of the reasons that people transfer care? Because they transfer sometimes to you, right? A person will be laboring at home with their midwife and they come into you. Uh, what are some of the reasons that would happen? So that's a real common one. Exhaustion. That, uh, yeah, that that uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the the labor's on a very slow uh, trajectory. Mom's just getting really pooped out. Usually, she's days into it. Uh, most of the time, mom is you know, there's this sort of um, the OB's nightmare of you know everything is going to heck and uh, train wreck, train wreck and. Um, but, but most of the time mom is in perfectly good condition, baby's in perfectly good condition. They're just tired. Very often we will do an epidural and, and get mom some rest. Um, can you turn that down later if she wants to feel pushing? You can, you can. Um, and, uh, some moms are interested in doing that. Uh, some moms are, you know, have become very worn down and the, degree of pain has become something overwhelming for them and they don't want it to come back. So that's that's kind of an individualized thing. I have had um, patients be transferred to me because they're starting to have high blood pressure. And so they see that. I've, I've had uh, uh, cases where there was some concern about the fetal heart rate and the baby get, you know, so they, they transfer into the hospital. But usually the circumstances are very very stable. It's not actually an emergency that brings them in. It's, uh, you know, there's some, some feature going on, and, and the, the mom and her midwife have a conversation about it, and they decide mutually that they want to move over to the hospital and they need to do so. The vast majority of the time, we end up with a vaginal birth. Are there things that would cause a transfer after the birth? Yeah. That can't be handled at home? Um, sure. Uh, there could be maybe a significant tear that's going to be very painful or very difficult to repair at home. So sometimes moms will come in for a repair of a vaginal tear. Uh, there could be issues with bleeding. 
um, where maybe the feeling is mom might need a blood transfusion or be evaluated for a blood transfusion, so she may come in for that. There could be a transfer because maybe um, the baby is looking like the baby needs some help after birth, maybe struggling to breathe or some other issues, and uh, they want to bring the baby in for evaluation or support. So there could be a whole host of reasons to transfer um, after the birth. I remember when we had our home birth, the midwives, one thing that was surprising to me was how many duffel bags of stuff <laughs> the midwives brought in. It almost felt like an episode of MASH. There was just more and more and more, and they all laid it out very neatly and it was ready. They ended up like not using anything except gauze pads, really. But um, <clears throat> they seemed to be prepared to deal with a lot of urgency at home should it arise. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, to stabilize things before transferring in those situations. Uh, out of all the home births I've attended, I can only think of one actual emergency that we transported to the hospital for very quickly. Um, everything else, every other transport was, as you said, mom's exhausted, not really progressing that well. She, she wants an epidural at that point. The pain is overtaking her, becoming more of a suffering than a pain. Um, things like that. Yeah. Um, have you attended home birth ever? Um, I have not attended home births. I've witnessed some home births that were being attended I mean, by not attended experts. as a physician, but you've 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 been in a birth at home, right? <laughs> as an observer, right? Is is it something that I mean, obstetricians, medical doctors can within their scope of practice practice at home, although the uh, ACOG. <laughs> seems to come out against it as often as possible, not even for for doctors attending home birth, but for people even having home birth. Does this still tap into that uh, early 1900 tug-of-war between midwives and obstetricians? Um, I have perceived an evolution in the statement that comes from ACOG, um, and, it, and it seems to be changing over time. Uh, and it's not quite as staunchly oppositional as it as it was initially. So my recollection of um, the ACOG committee opinion on, on home birth was that it used to say basically something like, we support the right of any woman to make an autonomous decision about where she wants to have her baby. However, <laughs> we believe that the safest place to... Uh, you know, to give birth is is in the hospital, and the, I will never forget the the initial committee opinion um, cited that the rationale for this was that there's something like a twofold risk of the baby dying in a home birth compared to the hospital birth. Now, when you look at the absolute risk, we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. It was a difference of like four out of a thousand versus two out of a thousand. And there was zero mention whatsoever uh, about the fact that the C-section rate for moms having a home birth was something in the range of 5%. And moms who were having a hospital birth, it was like 25%. Mm-hmm. So there was a five-fold increase in risk to the mother of having a cesarean delivery. And this was just not even mentioned in the committee opinion. So that was kind of like turning a blind eye. Which among other things means if she's going to have more babies, then her subsequent pregnancies are going to be more risky. Absolutely. Than had she not had that cesarean. So over time, the, um, this committee opinion um, has really been changing. And the most recent one, um, it's a very interesting read. And I think it's much more balanced. And they do talk about 
you know, the risks of interventions in the hospital. And they talk about, it's, it's much more nuanced about that the safety of home birth is going to vary depending on a lot of factors, depending mm-hmm. on, you know, the skill of the attendant, um, the, the, in, the inherent characteristics of the mother and where, whether she has certain high-risk features, the distance of the, uh, you know, the location of the home birth to the nearest hospital and what's going to be the transport time in the, in the case of emergency. They get into another issue. They sort of touch on it, which is the notion of the, the integration of the system. So, for example, in, in Europe, you know, there are certain countries where the notion of home birth, it's just built into the system. They have a, a, a seamless transport from home to the hospital and sort of accept it. Mm-hmm. And so there's open communication between, you know, the home birth providers and the hospital providers. And it's, it, it's you know, it's very seamless, almost like if you're transferring within the hospital from the labor room into the OR mm-hmm. because that was needed you might be transferring from home into the hospital because that is needed. In the United States, it's never been an integrated system. And there, uh, in, in, in certain settings, and I'm not saying this is rare, this is probably very common, there's a very strong bias against home birth. So when the transport happens from home birth to the hospital, they're met with a very negative uh, response. Yes. And I, you know, I've even heard of uh, cases where the receiving team doesn't want, even want to hear the report from the home birth attending. I do not want you to open your mouth. I don't want to hear what you have to say. So there's a complete fracture of the care from one setting to the other. And that's something that makes it incredibly unsafe when you don't have you know, collaboration from, right. from the home birth to hospital birth. On many levels. So on many levels. So that's I mean, something that could make a home birth safer if there's better integration from one level to the next. And it makes it more dangerous if the specific setting you're in, you know, you can't count on that. So there's, so the, the um, I think the current ACOG committee opinion is much more nuanced uh, and, and not, and less, I think, you know, dogmatic and imbalanced compared to some of their older statements. So I, I think we're sort of seeing before our very eyes an evolution in, you know, the, the, the point of view. And also, I mean, home birth, out-of-hospital birth in general is on the rise. Uh, more w- women are choosing to do it and their partners are choosing to do it. There's uh, uh, more more midwives, more birthing centers popping up all over the place. And I also see, I think, from the younger crowd of doctors, um, more of an openness to um, to their clients, you know, their patients who want to do it, um, maybe not officially backing up their midwives, but uh, at least open to doing co-care or being available for transport, you know, should they get called, um, as long as they were not told it was going to be a home birth. And you just, you just reminded me of another very interesting feature of the ACOG committee opinion on home birth is... So I quoted to you what they used to say, that we believe the, the safest place to give birth is the hospital. The current uh, statement says, we believe the safest place to give birth is in a hospital or accredited birth center. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now that term birth center is very interesting because it's a little bit of a murky term. There's a lot of hospitals that use the term birth center hmm. and you're really referring to a hospital, hospital. setting. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Um, but they didn't say hospital 
they didn't say birth centers within hospitals. They said accredited, accredited. birth centers. Accredited. And there are definitely freestanding accredited, birth, accredited centers. birth centers that are outside of the hospital. So they've all of a sudden, in their most recent community opinion, lumped in accredited birth centers as you know one of the safest places to give birth. But that is a, an open, a more open-minded I would statement. Say so. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Um, so things are kind of changing. Hey. Slowly, gradually. Slowly. <laughs> Um, I do have this thought based on just working with a lot of people who have to make this choice that I think that some people some people feel much safer in a hospital for whatever reason. Um, and I think it's probably the best place for them to give birth if that's where they really feel safe and they don't feel safe out of a hospital. And some people feel so much safer out of a hospital and um, don't feel safe at a hospital. And with those people who don't feel safe in a hospital and choose to have the baby there anyway – I have so many experiences where we're doing amazing at home with labor and then for just magic, we just arrive to the hospital and everything starts to slow down and Mm -hmm. become more complicated. So I think, you know, ACOG says the safest place to give birth. I think you also have to take into account how somebody feels about the setting that they're in or the providers who they're with. Um, That's my little final thought. Do you guys have any final thoughts? Absolutely. Um, I think in obstetrics, we very often ask questions that are not interesting. And so in this case, the the example of the not interesting question is, which is safer, hospital birth or home birth? It is the boringest question (laughs) you could possibly ask. Um, Because we are never going, because neither one is ever going to disappear. We're never going to, uh, get to a place in society where nobody gives birth at home and we don't have birth centers and we don't have, that's always going to exist. And we're never going to get to a place where birth moves completely into the home and birth centers and we don't have hospital births. We're always going to have both. Mm-hmm. So to me, the interesting question is how do we make hospital birth safer? Because that's certainly a problem in our society. It needs to be work on, worked on. Um, there there are plenty of risks that a mother and baby faces in a hospital and complications that can happen as a result of her care. So how do we make hospital birth safer? And simultaneously, how do we make home birth safer? Um, and, and, you know, training midwives, integrating home births into the larger maternity care structure and, and having... Um, you know, good seamless communication between, you know, home birth and hospital settings when that needs to happen. So how do we make both of them safer? I think that's the much more uh, interesting question. When you see that happen, when, when, when you're at a home birth with someone who has a really good plan for transfer, should it be necessary, um, it's so much more comfortable. It takes off so much of the pressure of not having that, you know, and then and then forcing yourself to stay home even when you don't want to anymore or where you're not sure that you should anymore. Mm. So on, on so many levels, what you're saying, I think, will make both of them more both safer and also more supported and in enjoyable experiences. Just to chime in on that, um, my first was at Good Samaritan. At the time, they had the certified nurse midwives there on staff. And I think that, one, made me feel comfortable, and two, um, I don't know what their numbers are at that time, if they had more C-sections or not, but I think having nurse midwives on staff can definitely help with all of that. 
um, as far as, you know, trying to do it naturally and being open-minded to that route instead of always just like, okay, emergency C-section or C-section. Um, so I don't, I heard that they no longer have them. I'm not sure why or what happened, but I think at the time. At that particular hospital. Yeah, at Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. I think at the time it was such a great thing that they had them on staff and they were there and it was just a part of the, the birthing um, experience there. So I don't know if more hospitals would do that or be open to that because I think that would help. I think it's a fact Absolutely. that there are births that took place at home that would have ended better at a hospital and births that took place at a hospital that would have ended better at home. Mm-hmm. My sort of take-home message um, is that for most people, two very safe options with different pros and cons and different risks and benefits. And like everything else in this genre, you have to do your homework and find out what decisions you want to make, what benefits and risks are the ones that you want to take because ultimately it is your body, it is your baby and your experience, and none of us can make those decisions for you. Um, Where can we find you guys online? Oh, great. Uh, Janice, you're on Twitter, at Janice's. But it's really just Janice S. Yes. <laughs> uh, and on Facebook, Janice Sardoy, and on Instagram, which is my favorite, Janice's Pieces. Because <laughs> uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite foods. <clears throat> I won't say which one. Uh, Dr. Shabira, where can we find you online? Uh, I'm kind of old school about the whole social media thing. Um, so I, I have a MySpace page. Do you really? No, no way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what? I did make one advance beyond MySpace. I I have a Facebook page Ooh. Um, where I put some little birth stories, and apart from that, mostly links to your podcast. Oh, amazing. Nice. I highly recommend your page. Yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's Emiliano Chavira, MD, MPH, FACOG. Nice. And by the time... By the time you're done typing that in, you're asleep. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a new follower. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm I'm on there. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for being here, you guys. Always an interesting conversation. Um, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, just send us an email at info at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's due (laughs) This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. 
Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.